This message first aired on the radio on May 28, 2004. As we come to the end of the Epistle of the Galatians, it might just be good to stop and reflect on the state of mind the Apostle Paul must have been in. I don't think that it's a necessary matter of interpretation to totally understand the state of mind of the writer. We don't want to psychologize the Bible in any way. But it must have become clear to him, begin to become clear to him, of the kind of situation he had on his hands with the departure of the Christians from the faith, and they're so quickly removed, as he said in the first chapter of this epistle. But where do we find this epistle? In the book of Acts, we've talked about it before, but we find it at or near a very momentous occasion, a very momentous verse of Scripture. We find it at or near the book of Acts, chapter 19, when the apostle was in uh, Ephesus. Now, very likely he wrote this epistle, at least it's my view, that he wrote this epistle while he went into Macedonia, just as he wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, in likely, at Macedonia. And so we would find the time of the writing, place it in the book of Acts, somewhere around Acts 20, verses 1 through 3, as he's in Macedonia and on his way into Greece, when he wrote both 2 Corinthians and uh, this epistle. But he's just come off of the rather extraordinary events of Ephesus, where he had both extraordinary success and extraordinary persecution. And of course, there rose up, there we are introduced to Alexander Smith, who later rises up against the Apostle Paul, does him much evil, and probably associates himself together with those who believed in Jerusalem, zealous for the law. Well, in any case, and a momentous scripture is found in Acts, the 19th chapter, verses 20 and 21. And we'll spend a moment on 21. We've covered this before, but as we reflect on it, here the Apostle is somewhere between Acts chapter 20 and Acts 15, but mentally as his point of view must be somewhere in between the momentous occasion of Acts 15 and this momentous occasion of Acts 19, 20, and 21. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So here the word of God grew. This is not the only time that the word of God grew. We saw that in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. We saw it in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. It's the normal thing for the Word of God to grow and to prevail because it is the dynamite of God. As Romans 1.16 says, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first. And of course, the Word of God is prevailing with the Jew first and also with the Gentile. And that is not without a spiritual reaction in the heavenly places by the enemies of the Word of God. So here it says, mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. And then we have these few words that are pregnant with meaning. And after these things were ended, it says in verse 21 of Acts 19, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so now we see that there is a purposing in his spirit. No doubt he's pressed in spirit. No doubt it's upon him that he's to fulfill his ministry, this time in Jerusalem. Once again, and finally, this will be his final visit to Jerusalem. And as we know, the outcome of all of this in Acts chapter 21, and then what follows, we realize that 
his last trip to Jerusalem, he's going to discover something that he doesn't really like very much to see, and that is James' helpless statement, you see, brother, how many have believed, and they're all zealots for the law. Well, the book of Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, written against that very problem. But here, notice a couple of words in Acts 19.21. I hope this stirs you up to study and to consider the progress of doctrine in the scriptures, especially as it pertains to the epistles in the book of Acts in this particular instance. But it says, after these things were ended. Now, this is not simply a transitional phrase. It is a transitional phrase. But literally, the way we should read this is, as soon as these things were fully accomplished or fulfilled. This is the verb form which we have the noun form, the word pleroma, a very important word in Scripture meaning fullness. This is the verb form of that, pleru or pleroo, and this is now the word meaning fulfilled. After these things, or as soon as these things were fulfilled, well, what were the things that were fulfilled? What was fulfilled in Acts chapter 19? Well, what happened in Acts chapter 19 is that the Spirit of God came upon those in the far reaches there in Ephesus at the hearing of faith. And something was fulfilled in Ephesus. Of course, it was a watershed experience, not by just those to whom the spiritual gifts, who they came upon in visible form. That was not the watershed event. But the watershed event was that at Ephesus, something important was fulfilled. And I believe the thing that was fulfilled at Ephesus at that time was the call to Israel nationally to repent and receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah who would set up his kingdom. I think here in the time of Ephesus, this is over with. And we see that acted out and worked out throughout the remaining chapters of the book of Acts so that at Acts 28, the apostle says, you guys are finished. God has set you aside. From now on, we go to the Gentiles. And nationally, Israel was set aside. Well, I believe that Israel may have nationally been set aside according to the mind of God and the word of God in Acts chapter 19, following the experience the apostle had at Ephesus. And of course, the rest of what we have in the book of Acts is the apostle finding out and we being told what the implications of that are. What does that have to do with the book of uh, the epistle of Galatians? Well, I think it has a lot as it sits strategically between Acts 15 and Acts chapter 21. Now, those two events uh, that we talk about in Acts 15 and Acts 21 are important to contextualize, I believe, the state of doctrine as Galatians is taught. Now, if you say this is this is kind of thick stuff, or why are you talking in this way? Well, I think it's very good stuff. I think it's very important stuff for us to rightly understand the the progression of doctrine. We don't find all doctrine in all places in the Scripture. We find doctrine progressing in the Scripture as it's written for our benefit so that we don't have a complete picture until we've read the entire scripture. Then we have the complete picture, or at least, let me put it this way, there's not a complete scripture to read until the complete scripture is finished. So when we look in Acts 15, of course, this is a watershed event 
where certain ones were coming down from Judea to Antioch and taught the brethren, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here we have them teaching circumcision to the Gentiles. And of course, preaching circumcision to the Jews, appealing to their chauvinism. And Paul and Barnabas had a big dissension and disputation with them. And then we have the so-called council at Jerusalem where the elders are called together and this problem is taken up. And Paul finds out whether or not he had run in vain, that is, whether or not the church that was in Jerusalem was holding to the faith. Well, that's Acts 15. But in Acts chapter 21, the apostle finally reaches Jerusalem. And when he reaches Jerusalem, he has some reception there. And he has, but the greater number do not receive him and despise him. And a tremendous disturbance takes place. And the apostle is falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. We have those pregnant words, and the doors, the temple doors were shut, and the apostle Paul is arrested. And he's arrested on false charges, for which he will be released. But finally, he'll be arrested again as Alexander Smith, the other Asian Jews, continue to collaborate and to conspire with the Jews against the apostle that are from Jerusalem and through political power cause him finally to be executed by, as we understand from history, by the emperor, Roman emperor Nero. Now, I'll just repeat what I've heard J. Vernon McGee say because it's always interesting when you say, when you talk about the emperor Nero, that to this day people name their dogs Nero and they name their sons Paul. Well, here, between these two events, these two polar events, his trip to Jerusalem, whereby he is met with fellowship and they agree with the gospel, and then his second trip to Jerusalem, where they accuse him of teaching the Jews not to be circumcised, and of course he's actually teaching the Gentiles not to be circumcised, and where they falsely accuse him of taking the Gentile Trophimus into the most holy place, which he did not do. Uh, not that, by the way, either of those things would have been heinous offenses uh, in the sight of God. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was no more the house of God, but there it was the house of the Jews left to them desolate. I won't focus in on that a whole lot today. It's an interesting matter, and we'll come to it often enough as we progress through the rest of these epistles these nine epistles to the seven churches or groups of churches that we're taking up. But here now we come to the to the point that the apostle, it must be breaking upon his mind that this is no small matter that got solved in Acts 15. This is a major issue that continues to grow, and in that he's on his way with the gift for the brethren to Jerusalem, it must begin to be breaking on his mind. I may have a lot of trouble on my hands in Jerusalem. He's had the prophecy that he's going to be bound. He said he's willing for that to happen to him, but he must be thinking not that he's going to have a problem. He knew that he was going to have a problem, but he must be thinking this problem is way bigger than I imagined it was. This problem has per must have permeated especially the church in Jerusalem, but maybe permeating all of the churches. And of course it is. And what's the problem? Well, it's the problem of sidetracking the believers 
throwing a switch on them so that they get on the wrong track and putting them on the principle of law, that old losing principle which only gives energy and opportunity to the flesh to defeat the Christian life instead of the principle of grace through faith. And it is not a matter of teaching people that they are saved by the law that is to receive eternal life. It is not something about teaching unbelievers to receive eternal life by keeping the law. It is to defeat the Christians who already have eternal life to get on the wrong principle so that they are not effective in their Christian life as spiritual warriors and as a testimony to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come here to Acts, uh, excuse me, to Galatians, the sixth chapter, these last several verses, we're going to take up uh, the last nine verses of Galatians 6. We're going to see why these people do what they do and how, at least some of how they do what they do. And these will be summary statements, inklings and, and so forth, which we have already gleaned out of the epistle to the Galatians. But the apostle comes to a gracious end. He must be coming in his mind to a very concerned and worried end. It must begin to be breaking on his mind that he's in a substantial minority. Now, when we get all the way out to Second Timothy, the doctrine of Scripture and the experience of the apostle has progressed to such an extent that he says, all have forsaken me, only Luke is with me. So it does get worse, and things do tend to get worse. Now, I've given all this background because this is the state of things during the writing of the Scripture. This was not the end of those things happening. It was the very beginning of those things happening. And I say it because the apostle must begin to despair in his mind that he can bring the truth across to the Christians who have received Christ as their Savior that they would contain and stay inside the faith. It must have been breaking on his mind. Will anyone listen? Well, let me say that today things are worse than that they're not better than that. Evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, and things are actually worse today than in the day of the Apostle Paul. So that one wonders as we look in the Scripture, is there anywhere, is there anyone who will hold fast? Are there any churches of God holding fast and standing fast to this principle of grace through faith who's not mixing in a bunch of law and destroying the faith that is in Christ. One just wonders about that, and uh, maybe that's why it has appealed to me here as we continue in BibleStudy.net. We continue to broadcast on the Internet and radio stations. Just wondering, are there churches where God's people can still stand fast that hold together the faith in a way that is pure according to the Scriptures? Well, I give you that. It's something to think about, something to really wonder about. I've done a little bit of traveling in my life, and I realize that finding that principle held by a whole church of Christians, small or large, but of course I suppose it'd be easier in small, but even small churches of Christians do not seem to adhere to the faith once delivered to the saints, as we read in the book of Jude. Well, that's what must be going through the mind of the apostle as he finishes up this epistle, but he writes it nevertheless. And here's our great hope. We all have 
if we've received Christ as our Savior, a nature responsive to the Word of God. And despite the unfaithfulness of man, God has been faithful to preserve His Word from one generation to the next generation so that we have the Word of God. And we have the Word of God so available to us. That is our great hope. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If the problem is that we depart from the principle of by grace through faith, then what we need to solve that problem is faith. And what we need for faith is the hearing of the Word of God. And how will they hear except there be a preacher? And how can he preach except he be sent? And so this now is what BibleStudy.net is all about. Stay tuned. We've got some good things coming, and I'm John Malone. So now in Galatians 6, we read beginning with the 11th verse, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. We'll read these eight verses. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now we have quite a close, and he comes rapidly to a close. Not a lot of salutation, not a lot of personal discussion. A, a very different epistle in the way it opens, in the way it closes. Not much to be commended in Galatia. And why should you be commended for departing from the faith anyway? Notice whatever works of law that they have decided to take upon themselves to do, there's no commendation. And in fact, there is none here. There is no asking these to follow through with the gift for the saints in Jerusalem or anything else. Uh, these people are on the edge of being completely outside the faith. Friend of mine, there are very many Christian churches today who are either completely outside the faith or who are on the edge of departing from the faith. But neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That avails something. And thank God that the continued miracle of the new birth happens according to the faithfulness of God and not the faithfulness of men. And thank God that when we have a new creation, we have the hope and we have the implanted word, which if we're meek enough, we can receive the implanted Word of God as we hear the preaching of the Word of God. Well, let's begin with the 11th verse, and let's debunk a couple of things that people say it says, and look exactly at what it does say. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. Now, if you read that in the English version, you may think that somehow the apostle thinks that the epistle to the Galatians is a lengthy epistle. It is not. This word letter here is not a good word to use. He's not talking 
about the size of the letter. Uh, and so the English version may mislead us to the extent that we think that way. It should read this way. You see how large are the characters I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now, I don't believe that the apostle wrote this entire epistle with his own hand. He's talking here about the ones that they can read uh, here in the verse 11. I think he wrote verse 11 in his own hand. And it says, you can see that for the rest of the epistle, he no doubt used an amanuensis, a skilled scribe, uh, somebody whose handwriting was excellent. Uh, today, that's why we use type. We don't use typewriters anymore. We use computers. But it takes away the problem of handwriting that so many of us have developed. Now, I think the apostle had very bad handwriting. And so he's saying, look at how large the characters I've written unto you with mine own hand. Many people take this, and they might be right. I mean, it's possible that it, the apostle lost his eyesight I don't think from his experience on the Damascus Road as much as his experience of being stoned to death. But it's possible he lost his eyesight. The, the reference you would have plucked your eyes out for me, I don't think necessitates that because that is a figure of speech. Just like we have the figure of speech, he'd give his right arm. Uh, that doesn't. That's a figure of speech saying he'd do almost anything. Uh, or a person, that they say, well, he'd give you the shirt off of his back. That's a figure of speech. That doesn't mean he actually gives you the shirt off of his back. It means that he's a generous person, and he would give you whatever it is that you need. So I don't think that you'd pluck your eyes out means necessarily he had an eye problem. But it is the case that when people have eye problems, they write in very large letters. They have to do that to see them, and they need to read them in very large letters. I have a young friend in Ohio who occasionally listens to this broadcast and whose eyesight, uh, though he's a young man, has been substantially uh, destroyed by an illness. And uh, he's a fine young fellow. I've known him since he, well, he was never little, but I've known him since he was young. And God marvelously preserved his life as a youngster. And he has a great love for the Word of God. Now, I say young. I'm sure he's uh, somewhere in his middle 30s by now. But in any case, he wrote to me not long ago and said that I have to have 18-point type to read. So uh, my emails, I suppose, uh, somebody has to read them to him or he's got to modify it somehow, use uh, certain facilities of his computer for the, that are enhanced for the visually impaired, maybe. So I was provoked in, in seeing that that it's true the apostle may have had an eye problem and he had to, and he wrote in large characters he wrote in large characters so that he could see them on the other hand maybe he had a hand problem uh, my little grandchildren when they first learn to print they write in very large letters because they don't have refined hand motor skills no doubt the apostle when he got stoned to death uh, lost a lot of facility of his hands, although in the 18th chapter he had enough facility in his hands to work on tents, albeit he didn't work alone. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla. So whether he had a hand problem, whether he had an eye problem, or whether he was just trembling and wrote in a large, uh, large block letters for emphasis, uh, I don't know, but it is the fact that he decided to stick this epistolary, this last portion of the letter, he decided, listen, Emanuensis, hand me the pen. I'm going to write this myself. And I, th there's no question that he decided to do that for an emphasis. 
He decided to do it for an emphasis. There's no promise that he'll be coming to them personally. So as personal as he could get, he said, hand me the stylus. I'll finish up this myself. Now he says, and as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, verse 12, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer the persecution for the cross of Christ. Literally, by the way, we read it this way, the the persecution of the cross of Christ, or lest they should suffer Christ's cross in persecution. That's the, the best way to read this, Christ's cross in persecution. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered once for sins and is now sat down at the right hand of God. And so he finished all the necessary work for our salvation. But that does not mean that the persecution of Christ doesn't continue. The persecution of Christ continues because they hated him and they hate his body, the church, today. The hostility against Christ certainly didn't cease when he put the enmity of sin against us to death in his cross. The cross, the work of Jesus Christ to save us is finished, but the hatred of our Lord Jesus Christ, the envy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the hatred of his cross, and the persecution of the cross of Jesus Christ continues to this very moment. Continues to the very moment. And so the apostle saying in verse 12, listen, let me tell you what these guys are doing that are trying to get you to be circumcised or whatever other legal principle they're putting you under. They are afraid of the cross of Christ. They are trying to escape the cross of Christ. As one little friend of mine says, they're as scared of it. And of course, no reason, we understand the good reason to be afraid of the cross of Christ. It means death, but that is not about the faith. So they're chickens. What he says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer Christ's cross in persecution. You see, they're trying to avoid persecution. That's why they do it. Now, this is complementary, not, it's not complementary to them, but complementary to what we should learn in the central mystery teaching of Matthew, the 13th chapter, at the very beginning, where we see the parable of the sower and the seed. The sower and the seed is a marvelous parable. You don't understand it. I, I think you won't understand the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens whatsoever. You'll be useless in spiritual war, as so many are. But he spoke a parable unto them. He said, Some fell by the wayside, Matthew 13, verse 4, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no depthness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. So here are these kind of believers. By the way, all who are sown are sown by the Lord himself. But here are these believers that are in stony places, that fall in stony places, and they don't have much depth. They don't have much depth. And forthwith they spring up. They don't have sufficient depth of earth. And then when the sun comes up, they're scorched, and they don't have a root, and they wither away. Now the Lord says, Hear ye the parable of the sower. When one hears the word of the kingdom, 
and that's the word of the kingdom of the heavens. Remember, it's in conflict today. Kingdom of the heavens is different than the kingdom of God insofar as this. The kingdom of God always presumes a good thing, that things are done by God in God's way. But the kingdom of the heavens today is in turmoil as the prince of the power of the air rages in the heavens. The angelic hosts that follow him wrestle, uh, try to destroy uh, the Christians who are supposed to wrestle against these wicked spirits in heavenly places. And the only way to do that is lawfully by grace through faith. And so then cometh that wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. That This is the one which was sown by the wayside. That's that guy, sown on the wayside. Now here, he that was sown into stony places, the same as he that hears the word, and anon with joy receives it. This is the Galatians. And they receive it with joy, and yet, verse 21, he has not root in himself, but endures for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he's offended. Well, that by and by is a very soft translation. I don't know what the politicians who translated this are trying to tell us. This is not by and by. This is immediately. When persecution arises, immediately this one is offended. This one is stumbled. That's what it means to be offended. This one stumbles. And where does he stumble? He stumbles right into law. That's one of the places that he stumbles. He stumbles into some form of ascetic stoicism, or he stumbles off into worldly uh, uh, epicureanism or hedonism. Those are the two things. But by far, the most deceptive and the most available and the most commonly done is the stumbling off into a rather comfortable but worthless form of ascetic legalism or stoicism. And he stumbles. Now, the Lord would not have us to stumble. But, of course, the apostle's not just talking about the one who stumbles. He is talking, in verse 12, about the one who does the stumbling. He said, these are trying to make a fair show in you of the flesh because they, they don't want to be persecuted with the cross of Christ. And let me say, the cross of Christ is still uh, available, and it is still being enforced. And the, those that hate the Lord Jesus Christ hate his body who is the fullness of him in the world today and so it is still the persecution of Jesus Christ himself which a Christian is experiencing the Lord said to Saul 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 why persecutest thou me now he didn't know he was persecuting the Lord he thought he was doing God a service and he said who art thou Lord he said I'm Jesus Christ whom you persecute and those are Christ's sufferings. He suffered physically in his body, dying for sin. He still suffers persecution from the world in his body, the church. And this is the fellowship that we can have with him, the fellowship of his sufferings. Marvelous. Hear the cross of Christ, Christ's cross, which, by the way, the apostle said, you remember, back in chapter 5, he said, Brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. But the offense of the cross, or the scandal of the cross, has not ceased. It is still the scandalous cross of Christ, still being pushed upon, and Christians today are still hounded. Anyone in the body of Christ, still hounded by the cross of Christ, in the world today because he that is after the flesh 
hounded and persecuted and mocked him that was after the Spirit. Now, he go, he had, the apostle has more things to say about these people, and they're not nice. And these guys are still around. These bozos that were in Galatia are still around probably in your church, coming to your town, most likely, for neither they themselves, who are circumcised, keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Of course, that now they can say, well, yeah, I don't keep the law, and you don't keep the law, but we got these guys to go along and be circumcised, and they're part of a greater Ju- Judaism now, and uh, so they're not a problem. We're getting them circumcised. We're co-opting them. They're not being a problem. And why do they do this? Well, politically they do this to get along with the rest of those in the world. That's what these Judaizers do. They needed to get along with the rest in the world. That's what Alexander Smith found out in Ephesus. Uh, We need to get along with these Gentiles. This is how we make our living. This is how the whole world works. This is how we come to be somebody. And so here he says, they do this that they may glory in your flesh. But I'm different, the apostle says. We're going to see how different he really is as we finish up this chapter when we come back after this brief break. Stay with us. More good things right up to the end. This is BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone. Well, the apostle now is going to close out by talking about himself and the way he walks and the difference between him and those who would have the Galatians make a fair show of the flesh so that uh, they, those who teach them wrongly, can avoid the cross of Christ. And that's what we're faced with today, people. Don't, Don't think that God easily lets someone slip away from the principle of grace through faith and into the principle of uh, works and law. It doesn't easily happen. You have to depart from him who has called you to do that. Even more difficult is it and more unfaithful is it for someone to go about teaching it. It is not merely a mistake. In fact, it is an attempt to avoid the cross of Christ. Later, the apostle says, there are some, and I tell you, weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, it's not that they are enemies of Christ. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, and here is the selfish reason given. But the apostle says, I'm different. And we know that from Second Corinthians, where he boasted in his sufferings. And that's when the apostle gives out his resume. He boasts in his sufferings. He talked about how much he suffered. And it it should be the resume of every preacher, by the way, uh, not just the apostle, but every preacher should have a resume of the sufferings of Christ. That is, the cross of Christ in their lives should have some kind of resume. The world hates the proclamation of the Word of God. And when we look at these Christian sympathies, should arise in our hearts saying, yes, this does happen. I understand it even in my own life that the flesh persecutes the spirit. I have that internal struggle. I understand that just like Paul did. And I also understand the cross of Christ in my life as it's visited upon me by the enemies of my Lord Jesus Christ. And a preacher should know these things. And by the way, Faithful preachers in all ages have reminded those that they teach that you should expect this kind of treatment. I remember when I first read a fine book 
called Lectures to My Students by C.H. Spurgeon. Now, I don't agree with Spurgeon's doctrines, especially. Uh, What difference does it make? He was a great preacher, and who am I? Uh, But I don't think he was right in so many ways doctrinally. Nevertheless, he was bold, and uh, he did give good instruction to a preacher on how he should conduct himself, especially that a preacher should expect at some time or other to be arrested, to be mistreated, and so forth for the sake of the gospel. And when you dare to make the gospel public, you will see this kind of treatment. Well, the Apostle Paul got extraordinary treatment. He said in Second Corinthians 11, if you recall, of the Jews... Five times I received 39 stripes. Five different times. That's a lot of whippings. And every one of those left permanent marks and permanent, uh, no doubt, debilitations. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was probably worse. Uh, These rods are huge, enormous rods, which is a practice still handed down by the heathen. You may remember that the President of the United States asked the government of Singapore uh, not to use a rod. I think the kid got one or two whacks with a rod, not to use a rod against some juvenile delinquent American citizen, 15-year-old, if I remember correctly, who spray-painted a bunch of cars in Singapore, at least one or two, and he was given... A beat. He was given a rod. He was given a, a a whack with a rod. I think he got one, maybe two of them. Here, five times uh, he was uh, the apostle was beaten with a whip. Three times beaten with a rod. One time he was stoned. Well, nobody should get stoned more than once because that's a terminus aquem. You are done when you get stoned. It is the term is stoned to death. Of course, God raised him back up. No wonder he had to write in large letters. A night and a day have I spent in the deep, in journeyings often. And you remember, if you were with us at Second Corinthians, the eleventh chapter, he now lists out all kinds of perils. But the last peril and worst was peril with pseudo Adelphus, or lying brethren, or false brethren, or brethren who have gone to false things, like brothers who begin to teach principles of law and works in the place of the principle of grace through faith. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we don't have a doctrine of works. We are to have a doctrine of works, and we are to have a pattern of good works, but not works on the basis of law, but works on the basis of grace through faith, walking in works prepared for us to walk in. And one of the works that the apostle walked in, well, five of the works he walked in was getting beat with stripes, and three of the works he walked in was getting whacked with rods, and one of the works he walked in was getting rocked to death with stones. And another work that he walked in was a writing of this epistle, these last eight verses with his own hands, and he says... What a hymn writer Isaac Watts has taken up, and uh, blessed him. Of course, we don't sing hymns in Christianity anymore. We sing, I don't know, we sing little uh, little uh, children's music, I think. Highly repetitious, unbiblical songs much of the time. But here he said, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think of Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Marvelous Lyrics, Okay, the music's a little bit dreary. It's Gregorian chant. I'm not real excited about that. But what a great thing to take a verse from. God forbid, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. As I 
paraphrase the song just a little, but make it more biblical than the way it's generally printed. By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now here he embraces the cross of Christ. He said, I will boast, I will glory, as the cross of Christ is applied in my life. Indeed, as I read the 11th chapter of Second Corinthians, that's exactly what he did. He was boasting in his own, in his own persecution by the cross of Christ, and he wasn't boasting in making other people to do the circumcision of the law. Quite a contrast, quite an opposite example of the commonplace thing found there in the Galatian churches by those who would not build up the Galatians, but who would destroy them by those who were not abiding in the faith and abiding in the fellowship of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but who were hostily departing from him, not only so, but leading unfaithful souls back into Egypt, back into bondage. Now he says, verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That avails a lot. I'm reminded of the scripture that a prayer of a righteous man avails much. This has to do with being in the faith. Of course, your prayers outside the faith. Let the man who doesn't believe, don't, he's not going to receive anything. Here it has to do with being faithful, and all that matters is the new creation. That new nature which God has given responsive to his word that operates on the fuel of the Spirit of God which comes only by the hearing of faith. And and notice he says circumcision doesn't mean anything. Neither does uncircumcision mean anything. The only reason the apostle opposed the circumcision here is that it was being forced on the uncircumcised as if it meant something as if it meant something and he said you gentiles don't don't go for the circumcision now the the fact is to those that were circumcised he did not promote uncircumcision he said it's nothing it's just outward it's nothing it's like the color of the shoes you wear whatever you'd like whatever you'd like but not not as a performance criteria in the faith So there's no reason for the uncircumcised to get circumcised. That is, there's no reason for the Gentiles to try to migrate into the Jews' religion. And uh, the Jews who were already circumcised, they didn't need to do anything. They didn't need to try to uncircumcise themselves, if that's possible. I don't even know how they could do that. But they don't need to try to get uncircumcised. They just need to realize that the way of righteousness has nothing to do with the Mosaic economy or the permutations and perversions that became the Jews' religion. Because in Christ Jesus, and the key is in Christ, neither of these things matter. Now outside of Christ, of course, there are great controversy. Outside of Christ, you see the enmity of the Jew and the Gentile, and the world is in a horrible state because of it, and the nation of Israel is the center of controversies, and their enemies hate them, and all of that stuff outside of Christ, very true, and we observe it, and we behold it, and it saddens us. We understand it as Christians. But in Christ, there's no... Well, he doesn't say there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's coming in the next epistle, the epistle of the Ephesians. But it's headed that way. First starts out, circumcision, uncircumcision don't mean anything. But a new creation now will come in in the epistle of the Ephesians, which we take up next, one new man in Christ, where the distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ is completely... Ephesus in Ephesus. 
And that's going to be a nice thing for us to look at as we, we're on our way to the apex, the very apex of Christian doctrine. In fact, the apex of doctrine of all time for all ages. God's very very best. You know, the age to come, when God turns again to Israel, is going to be a marvelous thing for the nation of Israel, but is not to be compared with the opportunity of today. Now, the, the millennium to come, when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and he rules with a rod of iron out of Jerusalem, it's going to be glorious, but it's not compared with the glory that is available today if you'll receive Christ as Savior, especially if you lead a successful Christian life thereafter, abiding in the principles of grace. A friend of mine, these are truly the best of times and the worst of times. You have the opportunity, not of a lifetime, but of all human history, if you'll receive Christ as Savior and be faithful to Him during this short time below, the greatest riches available to each one of us. Now, verse 16, 17, and 18, we come to this. He says, As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Now, here's a wonderful statement, and uh, we don't want to mess up with it. And here he says, that as many as shall walk uh, by this rule, by this canon, by this directive. What directive? Grace through faith. The cross of Christ. That's the rule. The cross of Christ. The fellowship of his sufferings, as he'll tell us in Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Three things. Not depart from him. Know him. Know him intimately the power of his resurrection, victory over the flesh, led by the Spirit, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that is to say, the visitation of the cross of Jesus Christ in my life. As many as walk according to this rule, peace on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Now he shows himself to be the one truly interested in the nation of Israel, not in the worldly ambitions, not in the day of their rejection. Now, I have a great love for Israel. I'll just say I love Israel, and I have that because my Savior is a Jew. Not that he was a Jew. He is a Jew. He's never been a Christian. Lord Jesus Christ, no Christian. He's a Jew. He's the head of the Christian church, but he's a Jew. He's coming back as a Jew. The house of David, his pedigree is certain. And so I love the nation of Israel, and uh, God worked that in my life through the study of the Scripture and opened the Scriptures up to me in that. But it is the Israel of God. The Israel of today is Israel in unbelief, is not the Israel of God. Now, does this mean that the church is the Israel of God? This verse doesn't mean anything of the kind. The Israel of God is the dispensational Israel. It includes Moses, it includes Joshua, and it's going to include 144,000 who will have God's law written in their minds, and it includes every Jew who receives the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, it will include every single Jew in Israel because they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and all Israel will be saved. Now, that's the Israel of God. Well, what part is there today? Well, today, the Israel of God includes those who are the remnant of Israel who will receive our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And then they'll no longer be Jews, but they will be 
in the Christian church. The Israel of God, a future thing. Today, the body of Christ, a higher calling, a heavenly calling, not an earthly calling. The apostle here shows his affection, especially for the household of the faith and those in the higher calling. He says, peace to you if you'll walk according to this rule, which is the cross of Christ. And by the way, and mercy upon the Israel of God. And that was something yet far off. The apostle didn't know how far off at the time of this writing, but he began to realize it's not going to happen now. When he gets to Jerusalem, that will be solidified in his mind. And when he's in prison in Rome, when he's under household arrest, because the Jews falsely accused him, he'll say to that nation, the word of God is now off to the Gentiles. You guys have had it. Well, now he says, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you want a symbol? You want a sign of your faith? It isn't the cutting off of circumcision. I have the complete imprint, the stigma of the Lord Jesus Christ, the markings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is boasting in the beatings he's taken. He must have been a mangled mess. And he no doubt literally bore in his body the impact of the cross of Christ. He was beaten for the Lord's sake. These are real things, friends. These are not symbolic things. These are real things. The Apostle Paul literally bore in his body markings that he could look at and reminders that the cross of Christ was being visited on him. And I'll say what he said in verse 18, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's grace, my friend, and it only comes one way. Grace comes through faith, and faith only comes by hearing the Word of God, which is what you've been doing here at BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. May God bless your meditation in His Word, and we're going to be taking up the epistle of the Ephesians, so get ready for that.